about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Verses 113 to be found on page 1078 of the Pew Bible. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as their spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath 
that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, and he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accept his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who had been saved. Well, good evening. It's great to be with you this morning, uh, this this evening. My name is Mike, one of the pastors here at Newtown and Erskineville, and it's my privilege to bring to you this amazing part of God's Word as we continue this series through Acts um, on the Christ's unfinished work. And uh, as, as I think about the kind of things we see in this passage, the kind of the transformation we see and the kind of where that ends up in transforming the whole world, I can't help but think that great ideas change the world. Take, for instance, gravity. Um, it's always existed, but some people had ideas on how that worked. So Aristotle thought, oh, gravity. Uh, things just go back to their natural place. And he looks up in the sky and he sees kind of the stars and he says, they're held in place by crystalline structures. Of course, that idea got changed when Sir Isaac Newton noticed an apple falling from the tree, so it goes, and came up with some ideas around how attraction works and mass. And that gave birth to Newtonian physics. Changed the world. Or, for instance, human rights. Christians would believe that human rights are founded in being made in God's image. But it wasn't until World War II and the United Nations forming and all that came out of that, that human rights became a social construct that gave rights to those suffering great injustice. That idea changed the world. Or, for instance, soap hygiene. Very important thing. Uh, We've had soap for a long time, but it wasn't until, and I wrote some of the details down here, It wasn't until uh, only 150 years ago when a guy named Ignaz Simmelweis realized that you should wash your hands before practicing surgery, and that changed the world. I love ideas. I love seeing things changed. I used to be an engineer, as some of you know, and I loved tinkering with things, fixing things, and there's kind of a reason, perhaps, why a lot of engineers end up in ministry. Would you pray for us, please? Because let me tell you this, the church does not need another fandangle idea. It certainly does not need more engineers. It needs Jesus. 
It needs more Jesus. Because Jesus is not an idea. He's not a philosophy. He is a person. And Christian faith is about knowing him and making him known. And the big thing I want you to take away from today as we look at Acts 2 is that making him known begins and ends with encountering him in our desperate need for him. He's not an idea. He's not a philosophy. It's all about encountering him as the living Lord Jesus. Let me tell you where we're going tonight. I want to show you how the apostles encountered Jesus and how God so filled them with his spirit, filled, him, filled them to overflowing as they encountered him so that they would take others on a journey to encounter him also. I want to talk about how we, we fail to do mission in our own strength. And I want to think about prayer. I want us to, to wrap this up thinking about revival, thinking about prayer, and how all of that points us to encountering Jesus. Our story in Acts 2 begins with Pentecost, that great kind of Jewish festival, uh, celebrating 50 weeks after Passover and the Harvest Festival, and all the Jews from the known Roman world kind of descend on Jerusalem to celebrate this great festival. And there's the apostle, the disciples, right in the middle of it, and they're kind of, they must have been in a really weird space, I reckon, because they've, they've been following Jesus, they put all their hope in Him, He died, they kind of gave up hope for a little bit, He came back from the dead, blew their mind, opened their minds to all of Scriptures, and then spends 40 days with them, reminding them that He is real, uh, and He taught them great things, and He gave them this promise that, that He would give them the Spirit and send them out. And we kind of find them just after all of that, and they would have been spinning out, I am sure. They would have been excited about what's next. They would have been a little disoriented because they're still flipping out that Jesus came back from the dead. And in that moment, in that God-ordained moment, in that desperate clinging to Jesus after encountering Him, God sends His Spirit in the most remarkable way. They are sitting in a room and something like a wind storms through the room. Something like tongues of fire descends upon each of them. And they are so filled with the Spirit that they, they, they start speaking. And it's in, understood in all kinds of different languages. It's a remarkable phenomenon that this, in, this uncontainable encounter with Jesus, out of their mouths, out of that room, and, and the kind of the truth of Jesus flows on like this miraculous river. And all these people, these, these thousands of Jews who are gathered for Pentecost, they see these disciples and they're flipping out. What is happening here? And it's kind of, you know, logical. They're drunk, surely. But then Peter gets up. Surely he reminds them that they're actually speaking intelligible words and they're flipping out because they, you know, for all of the, the kind of different nationalities, the different languages that are before them, every single person understands what's going on. Peter also reminds them that it's only nine in the morning and they're not in Australia. They're in Jerusalem and that's not a thing. And Peter gives this epic, epic speech. And bookending this speech is two questions from the crowd that drives the narrative forward. But they say, what does this mean? What is going on? And at the other end, they're going to say, what shall we do? And they're going to ask that question from desperate need for Jesus. And somewhere in between, Peter takes them on this journey so that they might encounter Jesus because he's encountered Jesus. He is so filled with Christ's spirit. 
that he is able to take people on a journey that they might encounter him. Now, he is speaking to a pretty monocultural audience. They're all his Jewish brothers and sisters. And they share the same kind of Old Testament identity as God's people. And that's important for us as we see the kind of journey he takes them on. But look at what he does. He uses three Old Testament quotes. It'd be great if you kept Acts 2 open um, so that we could do this together. The first thing he does is take them to Joel 2. And he takes them to Joel 2 because in Joel, we have there a prophecy that God will pour out his spirit on all people. And he's saying to them, what you see before you, this kind of craziness, this one of these wondrous signs, that's part of the, of the prophecy of Joel. For this is the moment when God pours out his spirit on all people and you are seeing the first fruits of that. These great wonders, this is all part of the great prophecy of Joel coming to fruition. This is not craziness, this is part of God's great plan. And what I find remarkable about this passage, as it ends, it says, um, halfway through verse 20, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, Joel is speaking about this great day, and often that phrase in the Old Testament is about a kind of a glorious and scary day, the day of the Lord, a day of judgment. But what is happening in the fulfillment of this prophecy is we are reminded kind of as we think about these, these kind of cosmic signs, this, this darkness, this blood, we are reminded of what we've seen in Jesus. For he has performed great miracles, great wonders. And when he died on the cross, there was great darkness, there was an earthquake. We have seen part of this already, these great wonders, these great signs. But there's more to come. Because the great day of the Lord, this glorious and great day when God would come in judgment, will actually fully happen when Christ returns again. And it's like this great day is split in two, opening up Christ between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And that's important because in between is this age of the Spirit. In between is this age when everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, on the name of Jesus, will be saved. And this is why this series is called Unfinished. Because although Christ completed his victory over sin and Satan on the cross and in the resurrection, in this age of the Spirit, in this age of mercy God has opened up, he is calling a people to himself to recognize who Jesus is as King, Lord, and Savior. And so the audience would start to realize that something very special is happening, something that's deeply tied into their identity as God's people, as God performs these great miracles in the outpouring of His Spirit. Secondly, Peter quotes from Psalm 16, and you can read about it from verse 25 onwards, about the fact that, the G, that Jesus is the Messiah. He picks up on a great psalm of David, where David is rejoicing in the hope that he has, because, verse 27, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. These great prophecies of the Messiah, the Chosen One, the Anointed One, that would bring God's people to victory, would bring glory to Israel. And as the Old Testament people longed for that Messiah to come, it wasn't David because... He died. His body did see decay, and Peter points out, well, he's kind of in the, in the grave. But there is one who does not stay in the grave. 
that death could not hold him down. And that person is Jesus because he has been raised from the dead. But just before he quotes that psalm, he reminds them that they had participated with wicked men to put this Jesus to death. And all of a sudden, the crowd before Peter is starting to join some dots together. God is doing a great work here. He's pouring out his spirit. He's actually sent his Messiah and we missed him. We didn't recognize him. In fact, we participated in his death. Surely they are starting to spin out as all of this comes together. But Peter continues. In this third quote from a psalm, Psalm 110, he makes the point that Jesus is Lord. He quotes from Psalm 110, look with me in verse 34. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The whole two lords in the first sentence might spin you out a bit. If you went back to Psalm 110, you'd find the first lord is in capitals. Uh, you know, going, that means Yahweh. So if we kind of try to do a bit of work here, we might read, Then Yahweh said to David's lord, the great one coming after David, Yahweh says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your subordinates. This psalm is a lordship psalm. It's speaking of the great one to come. Messiah, prophesied, the prophesied one, the, the, the anointed one. But now Peter is reminding them that Jesus, this Messiah, is God's Lord. He is the revelation of God himself, the manifestation of God in flesh. And in case you're wondering, this sounds a little bit despotic in kind of making enemies this his subordinate. We have to go back to the way Jesus has demonstrated his lordship. How did he do that? In seeking to save the lost. In serving rather than being served. No wonder they missed him, right? Because they were looking for this great Messiah who would lead glory to Israel. Instead, there's this pathetic Jesus on a cross. But in that was the manifestation of God's glory. His heart for the lost. His way to bring a sinful, broken people back to himself in extending forgiveness, in making them clean. They'd missed it. They'd participated in his death. And they are flipping out right now because they've just been on this journey. It's all happening right before them. This spirit-filled act of kind of, you know, languages going out, people understanding in a range of languages this message. We've got... That's actually the fulfillment of Joel 2. We've got Jesus is the one you killed, is the Messiah. He's actually Lord. And they're cut to the heart. As all that gets pieced together, they are cut to the heart. They are ashamed. They are sorry. And they are desperate. They say to Peter, what shall we do now? Should, should they hide? Should they bury themselves? Should they find a way to make amends as if that was possible? What shall we do, they say? Disoriented, desperate. They come to Peter looking for some kind of resolution, some, fun, some way to make their way back. There are two types of people in the world, aren't there? They are those that know that Jesus is the Lord and Messiah, and they know him and are known by him. And there are those that live in his world and don't know him. And in this moment, 
the whole audience, or at least 3,000 of them, are moving from not knowing to wanting to know. What shall we do? And Peter gives them Jesus' answer. Repent and be baptized. Turn away from the way you were living, not knowing Jesus. And be baptized into, participate in the kingdom life with Jesus as your king. And 3,000 people were added to that number that day. Christ's kingdom just exploded in that moment. From a few apostles and a few followers to 3,000 people. Because God was doing a great work to start his mission through the living and reigning Lord Jesus and in the outpouring of his spirit. Now, when I think about 3,000 people coming to Jesus in one moment, I found myself walking to church from Erskineville, that long walk from Merca to Newtown, and I'm looking around at all the crazy diversity of Newtown, and I'm thinking to myself, what on earth would it take to bring 3,000 people from Erskineville and Newtown from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the living and reigning Lord Jesus? Your mind boggles at what that would take. I've been in church for a long time. Um, 35 years even. And I've seen all kinds of ways that churches go about mission, outreach, trying to reach the lost. I was actually chatting to one of my neighbors this week who came around for a beer and we're just talking life and he lives a life that's really not about Jesus and he's quite open about that. And uh, as we got talking, he actually shared that he had some time where he was in church. I was like, oh right, wow, tell us a bit about that. And He talked about this, this church, he, he described it as happy clappy and certainly no offense to my Pentecostal brothers and sisters, but he described this church as happy, clappy, and in his, in his particular experience of that particular church, he said this, I saw in that church more man than God. He saw a kind of a copy and paste from Acts 2, the hysteria, the awesomeness, the greatness, and trying to replicate that, manipulate a people into experiencing that. I reckon you could find a bunch of stories uh, similar maybe from an Anglican perspective that people were actually pushed away from encountering the Lord Jesus because we were perhaps too rigid or too cold or not friendly enough. Churches, it seems, are very good at getting in the way of building systems even to stop people actually encountering the Lord Jesus personally. We're not talking about institutional faith. We are talking about a personal encounter with Jesus. Now, as I said, I'm an engineer and I do all kinds of data and sort of techniques and I love the latest kind of thing that you could do and kind of get better at. And I've done the whole kind of like, if you do this apologetics course, you'll be able to, you know, have a better conversation and lead people to Jesus. But I try and I try and I realize that I cannot force someone to encounter Jesus. Now, kind of crafting a worship service, doing an apologetics course, learning what kind of the five best ways to help people stick at church when they're new. All that stuff has a place. It's good, but it is not primary. It is not foundational. What is at the bottom of this, at the heart of this, is encountering Jesus personally. Because he is not an idea, and mission is not propaganda. It is the overflow of the Spirit at work in us. As the Spirit binds all that Christ has done for us, 
in our life and so fills us to overflowing that we might reach others to take them on a journey that they might encounter Jesus as the Spirit works in their life. Now, what do I mean by encountering Jesus? I've used that phrase a lot. I mean a couple of things. I mean, firstly, we're on the same journey as that audience, that we recognize who Jesus is, not an idea, a person, living as the Lord and Savior and Christ. And in that, as we recognize who He is, we recognize who we are. We are small, we are tiny, we are weak, we are sinful. And in that dual recognition, we cry out to Him, I am nothing without you, Jesus. I cannot do this without you, Jesus. That is the moment of encountering Jesus. And it's the moment we walk in daily. It's the beginning of faith, it's the middle of faith, and it's the end of faith. As we encounter our Lord and Savior. And when we do that, we are embraced by Him. We find forgiveness. We find new life. You know, just this week, I was reading about revivals and kind of just super inspired by kind of what God's people have done in prayer and kind of in action and how many have been saved at various points through great revivals through church history. And I look to those stories and I'm so inspired and I'm also so crushed because I look to those examples and I feel so weak. And in that moment, just on Friday morning, as tears came down my face, I said, I can't do this without you, Jesus. I need you, Lord Jesus. So fill me with your spirit. As we think about living this out in Newtown and Erskineville, we don't have a monocultural audience. People come from all walks of life. We can't take people from a single narrative of being the Old Testament people of God and kind of throw a few psalms and kind of see where it goes. If you try that, let me know how it goes. But we recognize that people come from all kinds of experiences of Jesus, of the church, skeptical, hating on Jesus, interested, don't care at all. In fact, just uh, the other day, yesterday, I was at my son's fifth birthday party, Ninjago style, if you know what Ninjago is. Someone from 1045 came up to me and said, what's Ninjago? It's a Lego thing, don't worry about it. Um, and as I was chatting to one of the dads of, of Lewis's um, friends, we got talking about church because we were kind of hosting this party, you know, just in the back of Urco Church uh, in my backyard. And I said, I'm the pastor here. And he's like, oh, right, right. And we got talking about Christianity. And he said, you know, good for you. You know, whatever makes you happy. And I was just like, oh, I don't know. I so wanted to articulate. There are two types of people in this world, those that know Jesus and those that are living in his world and don't know him. But I struggled to articulate that. It's hard, isn't it? But unless we take those examples, those people, those opportunities to God in prayer, I cannot force him to encounter Jesus. In fact, it's the premise behind Reconsider that we might open up space for people to share their stories of Jesus, recognizing that people come from all kinds of backgrounds and their journey is going to look all very different to each other. And we just want to we just want to pray over that and ask that God would move people another step closer to encountering Jesus. As I finish this, I actually want to finish with prayer. And you're not going to read about prayer in Acts 2, but in prayer I find a bunch of the themes that we've been talking about coming together because it's the expression of desperate dependence on Jesus, of personal faith. 
And it also, as I've been reading about revivals through church history, great awakenings where many people came to faith. Church historians and theologians like Richard Lovelace, for instance, writes that prayer precedes and pervades revivals. Prayer is the work that kind of actually germinates uh, the kind of spirit work for revival. A couple of years ago, at a Scripture Union uh, kind of national conference, Scripture Union's on about, you know, helping people to encounter Jesus. Uh, they finished the conference and people are like, oh, we should, we should pray about the work. And someone said, just sort of piped up, what if prayer is the work? You're like, well, what does that mean? Well, it certainly doesn't mean that we only pray. But what if prayer is the foundational work of encountering Jesus ourselves and so asking God that others might encounter him, that he would so fill us with the Spirit that in overflowing, we might actually reach out, take hold of opportunities that he has ordained, that others might encounter him. Now, I don't want to kind of bring prayer as this kind of final thing, like to guilt you all, to bring another Christian duty or anything like that. I want to liberate you in the relationship you have, in the personal faith you have with the Lord Jesus. And, you know, actually at Reconsider on Thursday night, someone really got this. As I was chatting to a guy who's kind of, you know, checking out Christianity, I was talking about how you can even find joy in suffering because Christianity is not a religion, but relationship with Jesus. And, we, and he suffered for us, and he's been there, and he can empathize. And we're talking about that. And he says, Mike, can I ask you a question? And I said, of course. It's kind of, you know, we're here to just to chat freely. And he said, when you're suffering as a Christian, you talk about joy and all that kind of stuff, how does that change your relationship with God? It's like, man, this guy kind of gets it. How does suffering change your relationship? What a great question. So we talked about Psalms. We talked about you know, even being angry at God sometimes, or crying out, where are you? Or even Jesus crying on the cross, Psalm 23, why, God, have you forsaken me? Real relationship looks like getting angry sometimes, reaching out in desperation. So I don't want to labor another duty for you. I want to open up enjoying the freedom you have in encountering Jesus daily, that you might speak with him and, and bring your heart's desires before him. Some of the stories that I was reading about that gave me great inspiration and also crushed me a little bit from Richard, Richard Lovelace's work on kind of revivals and prayer. He said, in 1857, six men gathered in New York City to pray daily. I love that. In one of the Reformed churches in the middle of New York City, six men gathered daily to pray. A year later, 20 groups are meeting daily to pray. Not long after that, in Chicago, 2,000 people are meeting in Chicago's Metropolitan Theatre to pray daily. And God so used that work of prayer. He so kind of uh, allowed this, this desperate dependence on God expressed in prayer that he answered that and brought thousands upon thousands to know Jesus through all kinds of rallies and outreach events. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, a great British uh, preacher from the 19th century. It, you know, a journalist rock up on his doorstep one day and say, how are you doing this great work? Tell us about kind of, you know, what, what, are, you, what are you doing to kind of, you know, see so many people come to your faith? And he could have given all kinds of answers. Instead, he takes that journalist, uh, he opens the church door, and inside that church are a multitude praying. Not because it was a program, not because the pastor told them to pray, but because they were expressing an urgency a desperate dependence 
on Jesus as they encountered him and as they deeply desired others to encounter Jesus. Richard Lovelace finishes one of his chapters with kind of this cutting and challenging remark. He said, imagine if, and he's writing in the 1980s when the kind of small group things are new and exciting thing. He said, imagine if in our small groups we didn't just pray about our circumstances, our, our failures, our, our need for healing, our desires. They're all good things to bring before our Father. He says, imagine if churches came together and prayed for the spiritual needs of each other, of the church, of the denomination, of the city, of the world. And he says, if you could imagine that, the transformation through the world would be incalculable. Now, I think he's onto something. What if we express such a desperate dependence on Jesus in prayer, in the way that we met together, in the way that we prayed in the quietness of our heart? What might God do? I long to see people, and I've seen it before actually, where people just come together, not because they've been told to, but because they love Jesus and they want to express their deep dependence on him. And God so pours out his spirit that they come together in prayer. Who knows what God might do next? It's a scary thing. I have no doubt that the apostles that morning did not write a three-part tract on how to become a Christian. And yet God so filled them with his spirit that they did remarkable things in Jesus' name. Let us pray. Father, you know each one of us, you know our backstory, you know our fears. Would you help us express our desperate dependence on you in prayer, that we might come before you and encounter you afresh? And would you put on our hearts such a desperate desire to see others encounter Jesus? For what we have seen in your word is an example of how you work so powerfully. And we would long for thousands in this city to come to know you. We are fearful about what that might look like, how you might position us. Father, we give every one of those fears over to you, knowing that your spirit is good and powerful as you bind us to Christ and all that he has done for us in the cross and resurrection. And so we pray it in his mighty name. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.